Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to camp meeting. We never thought we'd be experiencing it this way, did we? In fact, unless I miss my guess, some of you may have gone to our website and looked to see what was coming. And some of you saw the title of the sermon for today. The sermon title is Gathering. And you thought, gathering? What kind of title is that for a time like this in a time of physical distancing? Why in the world are we talking about gathering of all things? Well, it's a good question. Uh, there are some answers to that, such as the fact that we decided many, many months ago, long before COVID-19, that the focus of our camp meeting this year would be discipleship. Now, if you've been around Loma Linda University Church for any period of time, you know that discipleship is core to our purpose for existing. In fact, we express our purpose in two words, growing disciples. So we decided that's our focus this year. And if you've been around our community for any period of time, you know also that we believe that growing disciples are involved in five holy habits. Four, really, but the fourth one is divided in two. Worship, Bible study and prayer, community, and service. Now that service, when we think, has two prongs. Service to the needs of the world around us, and service to God by sharing His Word with the world around us. And so those five holy habits are the focus of our camp meeting this year. And so we begin with the first one, worship. And it's for that reason that we are talking about gathering, even in a world of physical distancing. Now you may be thinking, I wish we could gather, and I'm right with you there. I'd love to be able to gather and to worship publicly. But we're caught, aren't we? Those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who claim to be disciples, we're caught in the tension between, on the one hand, the desire to gather, a biblical call, in fact, and on the other hand, neighbor love. Scripture tells us to care for those around us, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In this time of COVID-19, we want to be especially attentive to the needs and the dangers of the more vulnerable among us. And so because of the wisdom and the advice of our healthcare leaders, we're pulling back until there's greater safety in gathering. Because we're talking today not just about worship, but we're talking about gathering for worship, public gathering, communal worship as disciples of Jesus. And the question I think is pretty obvious. Why do we need to gather for worship? Why is it that some of us are yearning to be back together again in the sanctuary, worshiping God in community? Why? Isn't it enough to, to worship by myself? I can worship on a mountaintop not far from here, down at the beach, out in the desert. 
I can kneel and worship in my own private closet at home and have truly a rich worship experience. Why the need to gather? What's that all about? Well, Hebrews 10 helps us answer that question. You remember that letter to the Hebrews. I know Hebrews is that letter that argues for the superiority of Jesus in all things religious. It's a powerful letter in the New Testament. And it will help us answer that very question. Because in the passage we're going to read, there is a line, a very clear directive, a call to Christian disciples to not forsake gathering together for worship. It's very clear. We're not going to read that line at first, but we will get to it. Just remember that all we read comes in the context of that very clear directive. Now, the passage we read today is, is a bit dense. It has a lot of words, so it's kind of hard to sort our way through it. So maybe pointing our way to three words that kind of help us organize the passage will be helpful. First of all is the word since. S-I-N-C-E, since. That will appear twice. Watch for that. And then there are two other words, let us. Let us. Those words will appear three times. They will point our way to action. The words since are a summary of everything that has gone before in the letter. All the arguments that the writer has made, all of the assertions which he has laid out, he summarizes quickly with those two words. Since this is true and since this is true, that's all that he's argued before. And then when he says, let us, let us, let us, he's pointing us forward in the way of action. So let's start reading. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, dot, 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 there are the two appearances of the word since. It's his summary of all that has come earlier in the letter. We have the ability, he says, to enter into the very presence of God because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. And furthermore, he is our great priest. He is the one that stands between us and God. That's the theology of the letter to the Hebrews. Now, since those two things are true, well, then what? What comes next? Now we begin with the let us statements, the action points toward which the letter writer is pointing us. So verse 22, since those things are true, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about the experience of coming to Christ, of being purged of our past, of being baptized and being made new. Since all of that is true, he says, let us draw near to God. That's his call to worship. In fact, listen to the words of the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright from the United Kingdom as he writes about these verses. He writes, verse 22, the one we've just read, 
Verse 22 is the primary reason we've come all this way. In other words, all the way through the letter to the Hebrews. Now we see where it's all been going. Let's come to worship. Verses 19 to 21, those are the previous verses, lay out in summary form everything we have seen so far. Our boldness of access into God's presence through Jesus' blood, which takes us on a new and living pathway into the innermost shrine through the work of our high priest. The result of it all can hardly be anything but an invitation to draw near. And drawing near is almost a technical term in this context for coming to worship. So because of the standing we now have before God, the letter writer says, let us come to worship. Now remember, all of this is being written in the context of that phrase soon to come, don't stop meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing that. Don't stop meeting together. So as the writer is talking about meeting for worship, he has communal worship in mind, gathering together as the body of Christ. And our question today is, why? Why can't I just worship alone, mountaintop, desert, beach, closet? Why gather together? Well, the remainder of the passage highlights three words that help answer that question. Three words. The first of those words is the word hope. Hope. Gathering together for public worship strengthens our hope. So let's keep reading our passage. Once again, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, if I can find it here. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 23. The writer says, let us, there are those words again, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Gathering together for public worship, communal worship, strengthens our hope. The writer uses very strong language here. He says, let us hold unswervingly, unflinchingly, unyieldingly, unreservedly to hope. It's a strong statement. That's just how critical hope is for the disciple of Jesus, for the person of faith. The late Louis Smeads, who was professor down the road from us in Pasadena at Fuller Theological Seminary, tells of the experience of driving out of Los Angeles International Airport, driving out of LAX, getting onto the freeway to head home, and looking up and seeing a billboard. It was a billboard with large, stark words painted on it, just three words. The billboard said, Keep Hope Alive. I want to read you Smeeds' words as he reflected on what he saw on that billboard. Smeeds wrote, I must tell you that it was the most compelling billboard I've ever seen because keeping hope alive is the number one priority of the city of Los Angeles today. Now remember, this is 25 years ago. Not much has changed, has it? 
Smeets continues, we're in trouble. We're broken. We're hurting. If hope dies, the city will die with it. But we all need to keep hope alive. Hope is to our spirits what oxygen is to our lungs. Your spirit dies when hope dies. They may not bury you for a while, but without hope, you're dead. Pretty clear, isn't it? The vital nature of this virtue called hope. The letter writer to the Hebrews puts quill pen to parchment and pens those words, hold unswervingly to hope. And he says it in a context where he's talking about people continuing together for public Christian worship. You see, the more isolated we are, the more alone we are, the harder it is to cling to hope. Some of you know that right now. You've been by yourself. You've been shut in a room, shut in a house to protect your health. You feel very much alone and you realize how difficult it is to cling to hope in those circumstances. The kid whose dad has said, mow that big backyard, we've got an acre, and is out there doing it by himself is thinking, I'll never finish this. It's 102 degrees. It's hard to keep hope alive alone. The jogger who's trying to complete the 20-mile training run for the marathon, mile 17, it's hard to keep hope of finishing this alive by yourself. The cancer patient who's isolated and cut off and alone, it's hard to keep hope alive when you're by yourself. That's a reason we gather together for public worship. It strengthens our hope. It's been years ago now, back toward the early days of my tenure at this church that is precious to me, Loma Linda University Church. It was in worship that day that at the end of the service, we sang that, sang that magnificent and stirring anthem, We Have This Hope. If you've sung it in a large congregation, you know just how inspiring it can be. And that day, the sanctuary rang, was lifted with the voices, with the organ, with the instruments. It was a magnificent experience. I didn't know until after the service that sitting about three quarters of the way back on the center aisle of the church was a man by the name of Wayne Hooper. It just so happens that Wayne Hooper wrote the anthem. After the service, he and I talked. And I could see him struggling to maintain control of his emotions as he described what it was for him to hear that sanctuary filled with the music of hope. There's something about that gathering together for worship that strengthens our hope. Why do we gather? First word, hope. It strengthens our hope in a way that can't happen alone. There's a second word. Second word is accountability. 
Accountability. Now that word, let me be clear, does not appear anywhere in this passage. But the essence of that word is clearly present. Because gathering for worship not only strengthens our hope, it calls us to accountability. So we go back to our Hebrews 10 passage again. Verse 24 this time, the writer continues. Remember, he's writing this in a context where he's urging people not to give up meeting together for public worship. Verse 24, he says, and let us, there are those words again, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The word in the original language in the Greek is a strong word. The translators of the TNIV from which I'm reading chose the English word spur to capture it. Here's how you translate that word in the original. Pardon me, how you pronounce that word in the original. You pronounce it this way, paroxysmos, paroxysmos. You recognize that, don't you, in the English, a paroxysm. Look it up in the dictionary. A paroxysm is kind of a sudden, violent outburst that moves people in a certain direction. It has emotion attached to it. A paroxysm. When, when the writer says, let us spur each other on toward love and good deeds. The NRSV translates it, let us provoke one another on to love and good deeds. The New Living Translation, let us motivate one another on to love and good deeds. They're all trying to capture the essence of, of moving people in the direction of a specific purpose. The TNIV translators, it's though they had in their minds the image of a jockey urging the horse forward, the polo player spurring the horse to greater speed, the cowboy spurring his mount to round up the cattle. It's a way of keeping that horse accountable to the purpose at hand. That, says the writer, is part of why we gather together, to keep each other accountable. It can happen in the public service of worship. It can happen in the small groups that find root and germinate and grow out of the gathered congregation. But in that body, we experience accountability. I'm caught by the story, the story of a Presbyterian pastor named Kevin Kim. Pastors a Presbyterian church north of us here in California, up toward the Bay Area. I want to read you the words of, of Kevin Kim's story. He says, every year, at our Ash Wednesday service, people have an opportunity to write their sins on a piece of paper, fold the paper, and then pin it to a wooden cross as a reminder of Christ's forgiveness. One year, a family came to the service and they walked through the worship experience as an entire family. When they came to the confession station, they explained to their six-year-old son the practice of confessing their sin and writing it on the paper. So when they all grabbed a sheet of paper and started writing their confessions, he did the same. Remember, he is six, so he started writing in large, clear block letters. The rest of the family wrote their confessions and then carefully folded the sheets so that no one could see the sins they had written down. They intentionally left their names off the paper as well. They walked to the cross and pinned their 
sins on the cross. The six-year-old wrote, God, I'm sorry because I lie. But then he signed his name and he refused to fold it. He walked to the front and pinned it to the cross. His parents asked him, why'd you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it up so no one can see? Then he said, I wrote my name on it because I want everyone to see it. Because if they know it was me, maybe they can help me stop. Six years old. That's deep wisdom. Already understanding this experience called accountability. And doing so in the context of a public worship service. Maybe they can help me stop. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews puts that in a positive way. He says, let's look for a way to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. For all of the virtues of worshiping alone, and there are many, this is one we don't experience alone. Accountability requires others in the body of Christ. We gather for public worship because there we stand shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart with others, people with whom we can experience intimate, deep Christian communion, people who will call us to accountability. That's why we gather. Why do we gather? The writer of the letter to the Hebrews said, because it strengthens our hope. It calls us to accountability. There's a third word. The third word is encouragement. Encouragement. This letter says when we gather together publicly to worship God, we experience encouragement in a way we do not experience when worshiping alone. Encouragement. Now, as we read this verse, we're finally going to come to that phrase we've been referencing. Don't stop meeting together. There were people who were apparently already in the habit of doing so. And this writer addresses that here. Hebrews 10, now we're in verse 25. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the writer says, we're almost at the finish line. Kind of calls up the imagery of a marathon. And the runners who hit the wall at mile 23, 24, 20, how would I know that? I've never run a marathon, but I've read about it. I've read about coming as you get closer to the end, you hit a wall. Just feeling like I can't do it anymore. And at that point... It can be the person running beside you, the loved one calling from the sidelines, encouraging you forward, that spurs you on toward the finish line. Encouragement. It's something that we can uniquely experience when the body of Christ gathers together in worship. There's a sense in which others can hold up our hands encourage our hearts.
That's what the Christian psychologist, therapist, and author Henry Cloud writes about. Listen to Cloud's story. When I was four years old, he writes, I came down with a leg disease that left me bedridden, then in a wheelchair, and then in braces and crutches for two years. I went overnight from a very active child to one with a serious disability. My doctor told my parents it was imperative. They make me do things for myself and not spoil my character by doing everything for me. I remember an incident at church, public worship, when my parents were making me go up a long flight of stairs on my crutches. I was struggling and taking a long time, but they were prodding me on. I stumbled, got redirected, and continued one slow step after another. I'm sure it was painful to watch. Suddenly, from behind us, I heard a woman say to her husband, Can you believe those parents are making that child do that? I don't remember what my parents said. But years later, I wondered how my mother did it. One of the most caring people I know, she is also one of the most caretaking, the kind who has difficulty making the dog go outside if it's raining. I can only imagine what it was like for her to let her disabled child struggle through things she could have helped with. So years later, I asked her, how did you do that? She replied with one word, a name, Emmett. Emmett, I asked. Yes, Emmett, she said. Every day, when I had to do something I just could not face doing, I would call Emmett, cry my eyes out, and listen to her tell me I had to do it. She would help me through it each time. It was awful. Emmett, says Cloud, was my mother's best friend, a wonderful Christian woman. What my mother had discovered was that by herself she could not do what was required of her, but with support she could. She was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, being built up. Or in the words of the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, she was being encouraged. Remember the verse says, don't stop meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing that. Meet together and encourage each other. That's why we meet. In communal worship. That's why we gather. Why do we do it? The writer is clear. We do it because it, it strengthens our hope. It calls us to accountability. It encourages our hearts. No wonder we miss it. No wonder so many of us are yearning to be able to meet and gather again. And no wonder some of you are still asking the question, why would you talk about gathering in a time of physical distancing? Well, I want to give you three suggestions growing out of what we've talked about today. In a time of physical distance, when we're talking about gathering. Three suggestions. First one, pray. That's right, pray. Pray for your brothers and sisters, your fellow disciples, wherever they are. Around our community, members of our congregation, 
distant relatives, friends in other parts of the world, pray for them. Pray for our world. Pray for this COVID-19 reality that has killed many and threatens others. Pray for those who are most vulnerable. Pray that the body of Christ will continue to be knit together by the bonds of love that cannot be undone by the challengers or the threats of the world. Pray. Second suggestion. Remember. Remember. Remember that we are not the first who have not been able to gather for a period of time. Remember, in fact, that around the world there are others who cannot gather at any time without their lives being threatened. Remember that the pages of Christian history are pockmarked with the stories of countless Christian disciples who couldn't gather. Where the church invisible only became the church visible when it was in homes and hideouts, when it was in fields and forests, when it was in caves and catacombs. That's the only time it became visible. Remember that they gathered at the peril of their lives because the state said you may not worship that God. It wasn't a health concern for them. It was a matter of what God they worshiped. Remember that this brief period of time, weeks or months, when we physical distance because we're trying to care for the vulnerable among us is a piece of lint of the, on the pages of Christian history. It will be over. And we are able to physically distance in comfortable homes with air conditioning, with loved ones nearby, with phones and computers where we can maintain contact. Remember, what we are called upon to do is trite by comparison. Remember the larger context. Pray. Remember. And the third suggestion, gather. That's right. Gather. Well, I'm not saying to gather in large groups and threaten other people's health. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying gather. Could be a husband and a wife, parents and children, a couple of neighbors, socially distanced, wearing masks, whatever you choose to do. But gather because Jesus said, where two or three gather, that's where I am. Don't watch this broadcast alone. Gather with others, and when it ends, talk, reflect, challenge, hold to accountability, inspire hope, but gather. Two or three, five or six, because Jesus will be there. Pray, remember, gather. There's a reason we worship publicly. We're called to do so. Public Christian worship is not an idea whose time has passed. It's not an outmoded Christian fad. It's not something we need to relegate to the annals of history. It's a biblical directive, and there are reasons for it. It strengthens our hope. It calls us to accountability. It inspires our hearts with courage. And in the in-between time, during physical distancing, it may happen on a very small level. 
But all of those small communities are knit together by the bonds of the Spirit that nothing in this world can undo. We'll gather again. But between now and then, pray, remember, gather. Because it will help us learn this simple lesson. Some of the greatest benefits of public Christian worship can only be experienced in true community.